especially in maybe in our American context. So if you have a Bible, uh, we're going to open them up to Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? The other day I was driving around with Aiden uh, right around Chick-fil-A. There's a, there's a light pole. And he said, Dad, look, look at that light pole. And there's a little verse on it, plaqued on it. I, I took a picture of it. It's on my phone. And it's the Second Chronicles 714 verse. And I was like, Aiden, that's, that's part of coffee cup verses. And he's like, really? Awesome. Take a picture. So I take a picture of it. And I forgot to put it on the computer. But nevertheless, there is a light pole right near Chick-fil-A and cookout that has it. Um, and if you're familiar with it, it says this. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sin and heal their land. And so you wonder to yourself, well, what does that mean? And who's that to? If my people, is that the Israelites? Um, because maybe the most understood part of this verse is um, since uh, in America, we think Israel's gone, then we think that we are the new promised land. America is the, is the new promised land. And so this, this is a precious promise for the United States of America. And, you know, there's a flag behind us, you know, or whatever in the background. So is that true? Is that, is that, is that what we, how we should understand Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14? Well, hopefully today uh, we'll get some better insight. And actually, uh, you can guess this, this text is about prayer. Uh, and I think it's actually a really good text for us on our 10th year to look at because it's going to help us get a great idea of how we should be praying as a church. So uh, let's pray and then we will jump in. I'm going to start at verse 11. Um, uh, so let's pray together. God, thank you so much for your love, your mercy, and your kindness that you've shown to Remedy Church for 10 years now. Uh, we pray that you continue to... Uh, Bless us with your presence, and Lord, would you use us to, so that people would come to know Christ uh, and that they would uh, grow in their knowledge and appreciation of the gospel and their love for Christ. We pray that uh, this morning <clears throat> you would use this text to open our eyes to what it is that you want us to know about prayer and that we would be people who love you and people who love to come to you in prayer. Uh, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are in 2 Chronicles, and in the Hebrew Bible, 2 Chronicles is the last book of the Hebrew Bible. So uh, what, they, what they've done in the Hebrew Bible is they've told you the entire story, and then as you get to First and Second Chronicles, uh, what the chronicler, that's the, that's the writer, we don't know who it is, there's debate on whether it's Ezra or not, but we're not going to call them uh, the writer, except anything but the chronicler. And so the chronicler at the very end of the Bible, of the Hebrew Bible, wants to uh, summarize the entire Old Testament for the Israelites. And so he writes First and Second Chronicles, and the purpose is to retell the full story of the Israelites so that they'll be reminded of God's faithfulness to them. It's written likely around 538 B.C., uh, after the exile to Babylon. So if you remember when we were talking about Jeremiah 29, how they've been exiled, it's written after that. And they had gone through some difficulties and it's written to encourage them through the difficulties after the exile is over and they're coming back into the promised land. Uh, and so he wants to just remind them of all the things that God has done for them. So Second Chronicles is written uh, towards the end. And as we get to uh, First and Second Chronicles written 
uh, towards the end of all of this time. And so as you get to Second Chronicles, uh, you're going to zoom in on really the life of Solomon. And so uh, chapters 1 through 9 of, of Second Chronicles are talking about Solomon. And so uh, one commentator says the, the Solomonic narrative of Second Chronicles 1 through 9 marks the successful completion of what David had begun in First Chronicles chapters 10 through 29. And God declares the meaning of the temple now, because Solomon was the one who built the temple, the meaning of the temple as the place of repentance and restoration, and as the charter for the future of the kingdom. And so uh, we're picking up in chapter 7, and so in the big section of chapters 1 through 9, it's given kind of the most extensive treatment of most of the chronicles of Israel's history, and not so much genealogy. Uh, There's less interest in the king, uh, but more about the abiding achievement of the king's reign, and the successful construction of the temple, and the inauguration now of finally having regular services. So when we zoom into chapter 7 of 1 Chronicles, uh, what we've already seen happen, uh, through Second uh, Second Chronicles, when we zoom into chapter seven of Second Chronicles, Solomon has prayed for wisdom. You maybe are familiar with this story. Um, when he says, what, what, what do I need? And he goes, well, I'm going to pray for wisdom. And the Lord gives him wisdom and wealth and all kinds of stuff, right? So he's, he's prayed for wisdom and he's also been given wealth. He's prepared Israel to build the temple. Um, and then he built the temple for the Lord. He furnished the temple. Uh, and then he also brought the Ark of the Covenant into the temple. He blessed uh, the, the temple and he prayed the, a prayer of dedication in chapter 6. And so uh, after you get... Uh, towards the end of chapter 6, after he's prayed the, the prayer of dedication, uh, fire from heaven comes down and the people s- exclaim out in verse 3, for the Lord is good and his steadfast lo- love endures forever. And then when we pick up in verse 11, all that's happened. And then at nighttime, uh, you can see, thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord in the king's house. I'm in verse 11, 2 Chronicles 7, verse 11. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord in the king's house. All that Solomon planned to do in the house, the Lord... Uh, of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. And the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said, and so now we stop. So what we're going to see in verses 11 through 22, which is what we're going to look at today, is where God comes <clears throat> to Solomon at night and, and tells him some things. He, he's, he's visiting Solomon and he comes at night, uh, similar to chapter 1, verse 7, where God comes to Solomon at night and Solomon says, just give me wisdom. That's all I need. So it's it's a similar kind of situation. So what we're looking at here are uh, four spectacular promises that God gives to Solomon uh, in in verses 11 through 22. So I'm going to do something a little different though. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to put all four points uh, that I'm going to uh, that are, so you can see the outline of verses 11 through 22 on, on the screen. And you can write them all down right now. They'll be up there for a while. But I'm only going to preach the first two. Um, if I preached all four, we would be here an hour and a half. And I figured there's lots of meat in points one and two. And we get through verse 14 through points one and two. And so the second two points are just for you to, uh, point three and four, point four, for, for you to know how the rest of the chapter outlines itself. And then you're going to go study it this week and have fun, so much fun doing it. So uh, I'm just going to preach points one and two. So you can go ahead and put it up. Uh, and so you can see here, um, I know it's small and you have to have glasses, but there's, comp- there's TVs everywhere. So um, hopefully you can see. But you can see what's going on here is in verse 11 uh, is where we have this, this introduction. And then verse 12, it says, then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, this is Verse 12b, which would be point one, it says, I have heard your prayer and I have chosen this place for myself 
as a house of sacrifice. And so when God comes to Solomon and speaks to him, the first thing that he says is God accepts Solomon's prayer from chapter 6, and he accepts the temple that he's built, which was done in chapter 3. And so he tells him in verse 12b, I have heard your prayer, chapter 6, and I have chosen this place, the temple you built in chapter 3, for myself as a house of sacrifice. This is pretty amazing that God would come tell him this. <clears throat> now, this word house of sacrifice is quite an interesting term for God to use about the new temple. This temple is to be a place of worship now for Israel where they would come uh, and where sacrifice is going to be made. We see that in verse 12. And prayer, chapter 6, where Solomon prayed the prayer, uh, sacrifice and prayer are now going to be prominently displayed uh, among God's people. They're going to come to this place of sacrifice where they will give sacrifices to the Lord and they will pray prayers. So prayer and sacrifice will be the dominant themes of the way their worship is going to be conducted for them. And um, whenever you have uh, prayer and sacrifice, they represent the inner heart and the outer form. So the inner heart is prayer, and the outer form is the sacrifice for the people of God to worship God correctly in the Old Testament. There needs to be the outer forms of sacrifice, and whenever that's going on, then the inner heart will be uh, moved towards prayer, and then proper worship is happening. Now, principally, not exactly, but principally in the New Testament, that's the same thing that's going to happen, but not exactly the same, uh, principally because there still is an inner heart and an outer form, but they're slightly different in the New Testament. So the way it applies to, that's the way it worked in the Old Testament. It's not exactly the same for us, but in some ways it is. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll explain to you how. Here's how. Um, an outer form has happened. A sacrifice has been made for us, uh, but the sacrifice has been made not only by Jesus, uh, he, he did it for us, but he gave of himself. So the outer form of the sacrifice has been made once for all time. And now our inner heart has been changed by God. And so since our inner heart has been changed, we've actually been given a new heart. We are now free to worship God rightly. Now here's where it gets awesome. This is how it's a little bit different. Um, so we can come because of Christ's sacrifice, worship God rightly. We can offer our prayers up, into, up to God, but not just in the Old Testament temple. Like for Israel, they were, they were constrained to a place. They were constrained to the Old Testament temple building. But for us, we can offer our prayers up to God and worship, not just constrained to a temple building, but anywhere because Jesus has made his temple in us in his heart, and now we are free to worship God, not just in the temple, not just in this room of a sanctuary, but because he resides in us now, he has freed us up and says, you can worship God anywhere because Christ is in you. So when we read in verse 12, I have heard your prayer and I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice, when we read point one, that God accepts Solomon's prayer and the temple building that he's given, what that means for us is this now. Because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, he has chosen, Ephesians 1, Romans 9, he has chosen this place, your heart. God has chosen this place, your heart, as a place for himself now, to take up residence and dwell. He's chosen that. 
He knew who you are. He knew everything about it. He still chose to forgive you and chose you as his child. And he chose to reside in you now as his dwelling place. And now, because your heart is his temple, his dwelling place, you have access to God the Father in prayer. Full access to God the Father in prayer. That's amazing. That's a like, whoa. Let's hear that again. Say it again for the people in the back. So we're going to do it again because I want you to make sure you hear it. It means because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, he has chosen, intentionally chosen you as his child. This place, your heart, as a place for himself to come in and dwell and change and move and make new. And now, because your heart is new and it is his dwelling place, you have, because of Jesus' sacrifice, full access to God the Father through prayer. He's given you this great gift of prayer. That's absolutely amazing. That's absolutely amazing. So God accepts Solomon's prayer and the temple building means that God accepts your prayer because it comes from the place that he resides in your heart. So, I mean, the the only application we can make from that is Let's pray. Let's pray a lot. We have amazing access to the creator of everything. Why don't we pray? Well, we're going to talk about that in a second. But um, that's the first thing is I wanted to help us see that we have full access to God the Father through prayer. So then let's talk about prayer and what that might look like. So that's the first one. The second one, God promises to hear his people and heal their land. If we have absolute access because of Jesus to God the Father through prayer to worship him, not just constrained and restricted to a temple building like Solomon and the Old Testament Israelites, but anywhere, everywhere we go, we can do this. What does that mean if we have it? Well, it means this. You can see it in verse 13 through 16. It's the, uh, it's the big picture Thing. So let's read uh, 13 through 16. Let's get the full promise uh, uh, that's given to us in this paragraph, 13 through 16, and then we'll, we'll, we'll look at it in the, for the rest of the sermon. Verse 13. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. So here we, what we see is Immediately in the context, God is promising this to the Israelites. This is what God's promise. The question is, is it, are we the new Israel? Is America, you know, the new, is that promise for them the same promise for us? We're, we're going to answer that in a second. But immediately in the context, what we see here is God promises to hear his people and heal their land. That's what he's telling Solomon. I'm going to do for you, Israelites. I'm promising you. I'm going to hear you when you pray, and I'm going to heal your land. One commentator says this, uh, this paragraph, verses 13 through 16, reveals the, 
the heart of the book of the Chronicles, the entire book of Chronicles, verse 13 through 16, and it actually uh, chronicles and is actually chronicles summary of the essential message of the entire Old Testament. It invites people to take advantage of the enormous and unexpected benefits God gives through prayer. It's bidding them to come and pray big prayers because God chooses to love them and will hear them and will answer them. So now that you've probably written that down, uh, there's another page. I have some sub points. So I was, there are more, but I'm not going to preach number three and four there. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to dive into number two and there's some things I want you to see about the prayer. So go ahead into the next slide. And I got a little carried away with alliteration. I, I'm sorry. All right, so uh, you can see the three parts of the promise of the paragraph and the prayer. So in verses 13 through 16, there's essentially three parts. And I want you to see those three parts. Um, the first thing is verse 13. Verse 13 is the summary of the disasters. Um, it says, it's interesting, right? He's telling them, come pray. You can get anything you want. And he leads off this, this verse 13, this paragraph to them, this promise that he's given them to Solomon um, by talking about uh, disasters. Look at what it says. When I shut up the heavens so there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. So he's summarizing disasters that have befalled uh, the Israelites up until this point, Solomon mentioned them uh, in chapter 6. So if you go to chapter 6 and you read Solomon's prayer in verses 14 through 42, uh, whenever you're reading that, you'll see that Solomon also mentions these. And so God, in, when he comes to Solomon, uh, mentions some of these disasters that Solomon had summarized in verse 6. What, what, what would be the point of this? Why would God start this? What, what could it mean also for the church today uh, also, why does God start this amazing promise mentioning uh, the disasters that came upon them and what would it might mean for us today? This is what I think is going on. God wants them to realize, and us, that disasters, whenever they come, calamities come, all things still come from the hand of God. All things come from the hand of God. And so, when these disasters come because God with Israel immediately, was angry with them because of their sin, and he wanted them to know, it came from me. Here's what he wants them to know, that even when God is angry at us for our sin and calamity becomes upon us, the only effective way out of that calamity is to turn to the same God that brought it for forgiveness. It's the only effective way out. And it's the same thing for us. Whenever we have consequences for sin, this means our only hope is to turn to God in prayer. And so he, he's helping them see in verse 13, all things come from my hand, but nevertheless, I am the only person you can, you can turn to. Now, he's good and he's kind. So even though these things happen, it doesn't mean that uh, God's not good and it doesn't mean that God's not kind. He's reminding them, Israel, these disasters have come upon you because of your sin. You've brought these things upon you, and these are the consequences of your sin. But when they happen, the only effective way out is to turn to me. If you don't, it'll, be, it'll go bad. It won't go well. So in verse 13, we have the summary of disasters, and then we get to the, the heart of it here. We get to, here comes the verse, verse 14. So go ahead and put up to the next one. B, which is God declared, promised to heal and forgive. This is what he's telling Israel, uh, 
He's, God's telling Israel this first. The question is, what is he telling America, right? What is he telling us? <laughs> well, let's, let's take a look. All right, so verse 14. If my people who are called by my name, who are my people? Who are those people? Um, who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then, so if, they, if then, if they'll do this, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. So God declares uh, promise to heal and forgive. He, he declares that he's going to do this for them. And so first, let's take it as it first appears in the text that God's telling Israel this. God's saying, these are the three attitudes in prayer that you must have when you come to me. These aren't so much like step one, step two, step three. It's assume all three of these attitudes when you come to me in prayer. You can see them. If my people are called by my name, will humble themselves. So the first attitude that you need to have is that you need to have a humble heart and when pray and seek my face. So the second uh, attitude you should have is that you should have a heart that wants to seek God's face. You need to be humble. You need to seek God's face. And then you can see that you need to turn. And in the Old Testament, this is a word for repentance. So the three attitudes that that Israel must take in prayer when they're coming to God is that they need to be humble. They need to humble themselves, seek God's face, truly want to know who God is, and turn away and repent from sin. Be humble, seek God's face, and repent. And if you do these things, when Israel takes on these three attitudes, God promises that he's going to restore them. What does restoration look like? What does it look like? He says in the second part of verse 14, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin and heal their land. First, he says, if you take on the attitude of being humble and seek my face in turn, I will hear you. I don't have to. But if you do these things, God of all, of all gods, the God says, I will indeed hear you. He promises to listen and hear them from heaven. And even more astonishingly, not only will he hear them, he promises that he will forgive and here's the, uh, the amazing premise on this forgiveness is it's not delayed forgiveness, it's immediate forgiveness. If you will humble yourself and seek my face in return and repent from your sin, I will hear you and I'll forgive you. It'll, my forgiveness will overflow to you. And then I will, as it says here, heal their land. Heal their land. This is maybe where you get into the most controversial part of it. Heal their land. Because we, as America... We feel like we have strayed away as a Christian nation and we, God, heal our land. That's what we want. Make America be like loving the Lord and, and seeking God and, and be a Christian nation again. Change us. Heal our land is what, is what we hear uh, this verse understood. And so what does it mean when we say heal our land, when God says heal our land? Well, what we know in Second Chronicles, if you move later on to chapter 30, God fulfills this promise. And when he fulfills this promise, let's look at how 2 Chronicles details the healing of the land. So if you look at 2 Chronicles chapter 30, he tells us, uh, the chronicler tells us what healing the land looks like. And it's not necessarily what America thinks. It's a little bit different. So look at chapter 30, start at verse 18. For a majority of the people... Many of them from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover otherwise. 
um, then prescribed. For Hezekiah, who had prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek the Lord, seek God, the Lord, the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rule of cleanliness. And verse 20, here it is. And the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. Didn't say the land. It said the people. And so when we hear this in the immediate context of what does it mean to heal the land? Interestingly, whenever it's described that God does bring healing to the Israelites in, in chapter 30, he do, he's not healing land so much as he's healing people. So when we understand that, uh, God is interested in healing people over land because people are where he's in the business of changing hearts, not dirt and trees. Um, then we can understand this healing means something. So when we say heal, this healing can really kind of think about three different ways, right? He's, healing is forgiveness that he's giving. Healing is physical healing that he brings to Israel. And healing also to, uh, healing to the land, to the Israelites. Is, remember, this was written right as they were in exile. Getting them out of exile in Babylon and healing the land as in bringing the people back to the promised land. And so if we're looking at that and we're thinking, what does that mean if we take those three principles that's given to Israel for healing and we look at it for us, I think it primarily means those same three things for us. So we say, heal our land. What we really can mean is forgive us, Lord, for our sin. There are so many people here in our country and in our world that need forgiveness. Do that. Bring physical healing. When we pray we, we are trusting the God of all creation who's more powerful and omnipotent than anybody to heal people. Lord, heal them. Make them to where the doctors are just astounded and they don't know how it happened. And bring exiles back from the promised land. Of course, this is uh, ultimately where we are in our, in our sin and in our death and we are being brought into heaven one day. So healing for us is forgiveness, physical healing, and one day whenever we'll be in heaven. Uh, so when we hear heal their land, it may justly be described, one commenter said this, says this, may justly be described therefore as a comprehensive phase for the restoration of all of God's purpose for the people of Israel and for the prom promised land. It's not just make this land grow trees well, right? That's not what it means. It means comprehensively make the people of God Know what it means to be forgiven. Be physically healed if they have things going on and be a part of the promised land and for us one day, heaven. So should America then, when we look at this, here's the big question. Should America or any country uh, usurp this promise to Israel as their own? Should it be something that we can just take and say, oh, we want this. And what I'm gonna do here is just read this commentator, Martin Selman, because I can't say it any better. It's beautiful. It's a little bit long, but it's just great. How... Does this promise uh, applied in the modern world? How this promise may be applied in the modern world has been a matter of considerable debate, though restrictions of space must make the following brief comments. Number one, the prominence of the spiritual and the moral aspects of healing make the Old Testament promises of healing consistent with the New Testament gospel. So the things that are happening in the Old Testament of being healed, they're consistent with the gospel of the New Testament. We are healed spiritually. So it can be applied in the modern world by saying, well, God does heal us spiritually. And so though he was bringing them healing, it does for us. Number two, 
Well, I should say it this way. Both of them contains God's offer to forgive sins, and both instances make this promise available on a universal basis. So you're wondering, does 2 Chronicles 7, 14 apply to us? Yeah, it does. It really does. Not exactly like Israel, but a lot, a lot. Heal our land? No. Heal our people? Yes. Even more. Secondly, the fact that spiritual restoration is offered to one nation also makes it available in principle to any other nation. So God, heal our people? You can say it. And you can look at this and say, he promises in the Bible that he can do it principally for them, but even for us, he would. Why wouldn't he? Why would not God, if the people of our country started crying out to him and saying, save us all, God. There's so many people that don't know you. Save us. He'd say, no, no, no. You're reading Second Chronicles wrong. It's just for Israel. Why would I want to? I hear you crying out, but I, why would I want to do that? Of course God would. Of course he would. So this is what he says. The spiritual restoration offered to one nation also makes it available in principle to any other nation. Although no other nation enjoys precisely the same relationship with God as did ancient Israel, the spiritual health of each nation is something God has a direct interest in. He has a direct interest in the spiritual welfare of our country. So how far the corporate life of one's nation shows how far the corporate life of one's own nation shows evidence of spiritual decline or progress depends to a significant extent on the prayers of the Christian people in that nation. How, how involved God is with our nation uh, is dependent upon the way we pray. It's just that simple. If we pray fervently, then he is more. If we don't care and we never pray, and I don't mean we, I mean Christians in America, then he's not. Third thing, one must take note of the comprehensive nature of the biblical gospel. It has a strong corporate emphasis in contrast to the individualism of much Western Christianity. We are so guilty of this, right? We are so guilty. The Bible emphasizes corporate and de-emphasizes individual constantly. It, we are saved individually. We're not saved corporately. You have to trust in Christ. Agreed. Nevertheless, uh, there is a comprehensive nature of the biblical gospel that is, has a corporate emphasis and is just as concerned with the physical aspects of life as the spiritual. It's illuminating, for example, to read how much Jesus saw his ministry of physical healing as part of his message of forgiveness of sins. Though Christians today may find it hard to understand how exactly these various dimensions of God's purposes relate to each other, the chronicler agrees with other biblical authors that God has joined them together. That's physical healing and forgiveness. And so uh, we should, as a corporate body, pray together for Lord to bring forgiveness to all of the people in our country, not only just that, but also physical healing as well. And so the application is this. The answer is yes. No, we're not Israel. And God is not storing us to the promised land of Israel. But if we will pray, pray as in humble ourselves, seek God's face, and repent from our sin, then he will hear us. He will forgive us and he will heal our land, our people in our land. He will do this. Why wouldn't he? So Remedy Church, let's, petition God in prayer for this. Uh, there's a book here I was reading, uh, and it's uh, a, a little um, 
Actually, I took a picture so I can remember, so I didn't have to try to search like that. So uh, I took a picture of the, of the quote, uh, trying to help us understand the absolute need to seek God in prayer every day. And it says this, imagine you were diagnosed with such a lethal condition that the doctor told you you would die within hours unless you took a particular medicine, a pill every night before you go to sleep. You would die if you didn't do it. Imagine that you were told you could never miss it or you would die. Would you forget? You would not get around to some nights, um, would you not get around it to some nights and say, oh, I'm not going to worry about it. No, it would be so crucial to you that you would never forget, you would never miss. Well, if we don't pray to God to get, if we don't pray together to God, we're not going to make it because of everything that we're facing. I'm certainly not. We have to pray. We can't let it slip our minds. Prayer has to be faced in this same exact way, that it's, unless I do it, everything's going to go wrong. Prayer must be thought of in this particular way. And so, Remedy Church, let's petition God in prayer for this, where we think it's life or death, because it is for our country. Like, the more we pray, not just we as a Remedy, but Christians in America, the more God hears us, and he promises us that he'll, he will hear us, that he'll heal our land, and he'll forgive our sin. So, um, this promise of restoration that he gives to us, that he will, he will heal, forgive, and he, 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 forgive us and heal. This promise of restoration he gives to us people, it's backed up by a remarkable statement in verses 15 and 16 about his um, attentiveness and nearness to us. He promises not only will he do these things, but he, after, I'm gonna be there with you too. That's what verse 15 and 16 tell us. So uh, C, you can go ahead and put up number C. 15 and 16, God's assurance of his attentiveness and nearness. His constant, I'm gonna be there, is what he's saying. Verse 15, 16, watch this. If you'll do these things, I'll forgive you and I'll never ever leave. It's the, I'll never leave you or forsake you of Matthew 28. Look what it says, 15, 16. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. Now this is what he's telling Israel, but principally he's telling us the same thing, that God is assuring us of his attentiveness and his nearness. He's telling us that he will be there with us all the time. And he resides in us in the same way. He's promised to us because he resides in us, that he will always be attentive to what's going on and he's always near to us. And we have this constant access to him in prayer. He affirms that not only will his eyes and ears be open and present in the temple, but also his name and his heart will be. This is quite striking language for the Israelite. Um, when he says, not only that my eyes and ears will be there, but my name and my heart will be there. Now, um, there's kind of two people, Jordan and I talk about this a lot. There's facts and feelers. I'm a fat guy. You just tell me the facts and I'm good. And there's the feelers, the people that need to, you give me the facts, but let me feel it. And if I feel it, then I'm good. And like, I don't need to feel it. I just need the facts. Tell me the facts. That's the way I think. Jordan's a feeler. And so he's like, when you tell it to me, Fudd, I need to feel it. All right. So for you feelers, you're going to love this. This is the feeler time. Um, I'm going to, as best, I'm going to get down with you and feel with you as best as I can. I'm not wired that way, but nevertheless, here we go. Um, this, this, is, this is feeler language. You're going to love it. Um, because not only are his eyes and his, his ears with us, but his name and his heart are with us. Now, 
Mind you, this isn't defined how his eyes and his ears and his name and his heart with us, but nevertheless, it's telling us that it is. He's promised that his name and his heart will be present with them in the temple. And principally, that means it is with us. His name, his very name, the Lord Yahweh, I am that I am, the being of all beings, that name, I am, the constant state of always being, God, never, ever had a starting place, always have been and always will be. My name will be with you. Once you're in the promised land, your, your old name is no longer there anymore. You have a new name. And it's my name that is with you. The same thing is with us. Um, so one day, whenever you became a Christian, you took on his name. The old name you had, liar, cheater, philanderer, sinner, filthy, slanderer, that's not your name anymore. Your name is new. You've been given the name of Christ. And his name promises to be with you. And now you have taken on his name. Not your old name anymore that people said you were the philanderer or the cheater or the hater or the whatever it was. That's not your name anymore. You now bear the name of Christ and behold, he's with you always. And not only is his name gonna be with you, his heart. Now the idea of God having a heart is rarely used in the Bible. Now this is of course anthropomorphic language and that just means God condescending to us using language and characteristics that human have, not him, but humans have, to help us understand what he's like. God doesn't have a heart. Don't take that out of context. Literally. Of course he has a heart, but not literally. We have hearts. And when we talk about hearts humanly, we mean our innermost being. And here, he's using anthropomorphic language where he's condescending to us, and he's saying, my heart will be with you. When scripture does this, and it's very rare when it speaks of God's heart, when it does this, it's speaking of his heart, usually when it speaks of his heart, being broken because of the humanity's sin around them. And so since the heart represents the innermost parts of a person, God's telling them, you no longer have that name anymore. You have my name. My name is with you. You're not philanderer. You're not cheater. You're not liar. You are a Christian. You are a Christ follower. And my innermost being of all that I am as God is being offered to humankind. God is offering you his deepest inner being to you. My heart is with you. And this text is telling us that not only is his name with us, but the innermost being of who God is, his heart. This is really rare in the Bible. It's quite striking in Second Chronicles that he does this. And he's telling us that he is with us in the most intimate way that we can, that he is reminding us that he is near to us and attentive to us specifically his heart is with us in prayer. That's when we are most attuned to it. When you are most attuned to the heart of God is in prayer. And we have access to that because God has chosen you specifically to take up residence in your heart. And so I want to conclude this way. Praise God. The second Chronicles, if you look for uh, how to preach Christ from Second Chronicles. The, the point that the writer's trying to do is uh, when he writes, he writes about this great king. So as he's writing, he's writing about David and he's writing about Solomon, portraying them as great kings because he's wanting you to see the great king, the perfect king that will come and fulfill all these things, not just setting up temples and, and, and building, but uh, setting up the kingdom of God for his people. This is what 
how Solomon does that for his people, but ultimately Jesus is the true and better Solomon. He does that for us. And so praise God, we have this perfect king who fulfills the tasks of establishing God's kingdom and provides his people, especially provides to us through prayer. We have a king that gave his life for us and asks us to come meet with him in prayer, to commune with us so we can really be in tune with the heart of God and he will heal our land. He will heal our people if we'll just ask. I'm gonna close with a prayer from the Valley of Vision. Um, This is a book written by Puritans and I thought there was a a great prayer in here and I wanna close in prayer with this. So you can close your eyes, let's pray. Oh God of the open ear, teach me to live by prayer as well as by providence. For myself, my soul, my body, my children, my family, my church, give me a heart framable to thy will. So might I live in prayer and honor thee, being kept from evil, known and unknown. Help me to see the sin that accompanies me, all that I do, and the good I can distill from everything. Let me know that the work of prayer is to bring my will into your will. And without this, it's folly to even pray. When I try to bring your will to mine, it is to command Christ to be above him and wiser than he, and this is, this is sin and pride. I can only succeed when I pray according to the precept and promise and to be done with it as it pleases you, according to your sovereign will. When you command me to pray for pardon, peace, brokenness, it is because you will give these things to me that you have promised for your glory as well as for my good. Help me not only to desire small things, but with holy boldness to desire great things for your people and for myself, for our land. That's me adding that. That they and I might live to show God's glory. Teach me that it is wisdom for me to pray for all that I have out of love willingly and not out of necessity, that I may come to you at any time. I may lay open all my needs that are acceptable to you, that, I may, that my great sin does not keep me from coming and savoring your ways, and that the remembrance of this truth is one way in the sense of thy presence, that there is no wrath like the, like the wrath of being governed by my own lusts and for my own ends. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be people who would come to you, seek your heart, be amazed that we are invited into your presence, that we would humble ourselves, that we would repent and turn from our ways, and that you would hear us, forgive us, and heal the people of this country, of the whole world. But, Lord, we live here. So let us, God, let us, be moved by the fact that we can come to you in prayer and be people of prayer and be absolutely dependent upon you in prayer because you have given us your name. We are now in Christ. And because of this, God, we are amazed. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna go into a time of the Lord's Supper where we celebrate the fact that that old name you had is no longer yours. But because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, the new name of 
Christ follower, Christ lover, Christian is your name. So if you're a believer in Christ, this time is for you. You may want to take a few moments, that's fine, during the song. But whenever you're ready, come forward, get the bread and the cup. Come back, there's one in the back. Make sure you look at the signs. There's uh, wine and juice, pick the one you want. And whenever you're ready, uh, get it and come back to your seat and we'll take, we'll take it corporately together.